All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 19 of the Making Noise podcast. My name is Adam Kanaw. I'm your host. This is a podcast where we have unfiltered and unedited conversations with musicians about the uh, their personal and professional lives, how it all connects and overlaps, and uh, hopefully along the way we can learn a little bit about how they handle it, uh, how they handle both of those aspects, uh, and we can inform ourselves as and learn from each other, and hopefully in the process lift up our careers. So. Um, this episode today is with the amazing Eric Stem. Uh, he is such a down-to-earth, easygoing person. It was so much fun talking to him. Uh, but Eric is a composer. He is a professor at Indiana State University Southeast. He started the ensemble Atonal. He started a record label. He he, he does everything, uh, anything and everything in music. He's he's done it. And uh, this conversation was just was such an absolute pleasure. Uh, we talked all about the America Buy project, this um, multi-year project he's been doing with regional orchestras where he writes uh, a piece for them based on the, the city that they're located in, meeting the people in the area. Um, we talk about being, becoming a composer and finding your career path. We talk same thing for performers. We talk about that. Um, we talk about comedy. You know I love comedy, so that's going to come up at some point, probably. But um, yeah, we, we get into all kinds of stuff. So um, as always, please like and subscribe. Um, if, if there's a certain platform you want the podcast to be featured on, I'll be happy to add it to that. Please let me know. And uh, yeah, let's make some noise. My name is Adam Kanaw, and I am a collaborative composer. Join me in the search for a career in classical music. This is the Making Noise podcast. Ah, doing good, doing good. Just got back from Surf City, North Carolina, and nearly escaped a hurricane, or I guess it was Tropical Storm Elsa at the time. So just uh, coming back from that and getting back into reality, as they say. How oh, <laughs> that, that's, that's quite a, even that right there is like quite a story already. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were kind of lucky because I think, you know, Florida got hit really bad, but um, by the time it made its way up to, to North Carolina, it was already downgraded to like a tropical storm. The It was only like 27 mile per hour winds. And so it was just on Thursday, we got this big storm and it was kind of fun. We actually went out on the beach and kind of filmed it and, you know, just played around while there was a lot, like a miniature sandstorm going on. But uh, other than that, it was just a quick, you know, four hours and it was done and we were able to sort of enjoy the beach after that on Friday and Saturday. So it was not too bad. So Right, yeah. That's good then. You you got to at least like uh you know have some semblance of what was like a small degree of a hurricane. Right. You know? Exactly. exactly. Yeah. You, you don't you don't want to be in like those 70 mile per hour winds, you know? No. That would definitely put a damper on the uh the plans. Uh no doubt. So where, where was, you said this was, um, was Surf City? Is that what it yeah, is? Yeah, Surf City, uh, North Carolina. So basically, it's a little south of the Outer Banks, uh, which is a place where we usually go to uh, every, you know, we, we try to make it every other year or so. It's been about three years since we've been to the beach. But uh, Surf City is a little bit, uh, it's near Wilmington. Um, and so it's a small, um, you know, sort of residential beach community. It's It's very quiet. You know, it doesn't have a lot of, stuff on the island itself but it's very good if you want to just take a book and read and enjoy and relax and recharge the batteries so to speak you know so yeah it's kind of good, kind of good for that 
<laughs> well, that's definitely necessary as a musician and a composer, you know. Absolutely. The, all the all the mental energy of, of trying to be creative and you know um yeah what is that like when you're on vacation because that was a family vacation right oh yeah it was a family trip definitely. okay so when, when you're on vacation do you ever do you ever have like that guilty feeling of not composing or like you 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 feel like you need to compose or something oh absolutely yeah yeah because we're, we're so geared to to writing every day we're so geared to doing other things like emailing every day and and so yeah when you get a like i think the first day i'm just so exhausted i i don't care so i'm just you know sitting down and trying to enjoy myself and then around the third day or so i start to go hmm i should be writing some music or i should be <laughs> you know i should be marketing myself or redoing my you know woefully outdated website or something of that sort so yeah that does kick in does it does it uh, do that for you as well or yeah, it does. Um, I usually like I've always viewed vacation as this is like it's this is my time away. Mm -hmm. And so I, I do this thing that actually has been um, a huge mistake in several instances where I don't bring my cell phone anywhere I go, because I'm like, I'm with these people for a reason. I'm not here to like, you know, talk to anyone else. Right. And um, one time my friend had a bachelor party in Atlantic City in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And I did just that. I left my cell phone at the hotel. And the very first uh, bar we went to at the casino, um, I like wandered off real quick to the slot machines. And when I came back, everyone was gone. And I never saw them the rest of the night. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. Because <laughs> I didn't have my cell phone on me. I left it at the hotel. So. <laughs> right. Exactly. You got punished. Yeah. I got punished. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that has nothing to do with composing, obviously. But I mean, um, yeah. But yeah, like like what you were saying, I don't know. I think, um, yeah, with vacations, I actually, I, I find it hard um, not to think about composing, but I don't find it too hard to not compose. Right. If that makes sense. Well, you're probably, you know, like me in the sense that you're not really taking a vacation from the thing that you're passionate and you love a, a lot. And, mm -hmm. and that's actually... What's interesting is that, you know, we say vacation. So what are you taking your vacation from? And oftentimes we're taking it from like very tedious jobs, you know, and so maybe there's, you know, a job that you're doing, which a lot of composers do, you know, we have day jobs and so forth. A lot of us hold university positions and so forth. And, and some of us have uh, sort of a pie chart of a portfolio career that we deal with, but um for me, it's a university position, and uh, sometimes it's just kind of nice to get away from the administrative stuff and actually be at a place at a completely different location, and, you know, that gets the creative energy and sort of the juices flowing, you know, and, and it's nice to kind of have a little bit of a different uh, perspective, and that does help a little bit with the creative aspect, so why not take advantage of it, you know, if you're there and you're like, I have a really good idea, and that actually happened to me at the beach. I was like, oh, I need to... I need to do this with the clarinet section and I had to just crank open the laptop and let it go. So yeah, yeah it's good to, to catch that bug while you have it. Um, or at least, you know, capture the idea. Uh, I, I like the way you frame that. Like, what are you exactly are you taking a vacation from? Because mm -hmm. it's usually something specific that you just need to step back, step away from and um, recharge your batteries, I guess. Uh, yeah. yeah, that makes yeah, a lot of sense. Yeah, for, for me and especially for my family, it's, you know, with this this past year, this pandemic, you know, it's been a, you know, 
we, we were pretty much locked down for the first several months, like most people. And uh, we were we were pretty serious about social distancing and at you know my family. And so we um, we pretty much adhered to a lot of things, but that allowed that sort of prevented us from getting out and doing some of the things that we've always enjoyed. And so we actually uh, found that taking these little, um, like every two months or so, taking these weekend little getaways to this place. This is a, a, a place near us called Taylor, Taylorsville Lake. And it's actually a really uh, nice, pretty inexpensive uh, getaway. And we just get a little place and it's different. It's a new house, you know, uh, it's kind of almost like a staycation in a way. And, um, but yeah, it just kind of recharges the batteries and um, not necessarily just to kind of get away from something, but just to kind of uh, mix things up a little bit, you know, and, and yeah, enjoy, enjoy a little change for a while. So, yeah, that's important, especially like you were saying with the pandemic, because we're all just like, we've, we know we've been stuck together for so long. And then uh, you no longer have that, like even just going to the day job sort of thing where you can be in a different environment, uh, bring back a certain level of energy that you might not have had if you stayed inside all day, you know? Right. And especially, you know, when you have kids, I have, you know, four of, of them myself. So, you know, I have a, uh, so yeah, they're like 15, 14, 13, and then I have a six-year-old. So I have the whole gamut of, you know, I got the, I got the teenager attitudes with the six-year-old energy of daddy, daddy, let's do this. So it's like, yeah, being cooped up with them uh, for 12 months was definitely, um, I'll put the word interesting out there. <laughs> so, uh, it's uh certainly nice to kind of get out and, and do something different with the family. So. Yeah. I could imagine with that, that amount of, um, you know, there's the adolescence and then the child, you know, uh, keeps you young in many ways and keeps you on your toes. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's cool because it's a good excuse to be a kid too. You know, like you get to do goofy things and it's like, Oh wow. I haven't grown up since uh, I was six years old. So yeah, it kind of pulls me out into my little, you know, inner kid, so to speak. So. Yeah, yeah, I think I think I, I enjoy that aspect of being around children, you know, what I mean, because I, I teach music at a at a Salvation Army, like after school program. And there's a, a ukulele class for like five to eight year olds or around there. And then there's like a piano class for nine to 13 year olds. And, uh, oh, man, the things that the, the younger group says is just, it just, I love it. I love, like, <laughs> right. you know, be, being in that environment and, like, having that, uh, just, like, I don't know. Everything is everything is a story with them, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And the good thing is, is that they keep you, like, on top of all the cool things that are going on, you know, with the youth so to speak, you know, so it's like, you don't, you don't lose touch of what's cool now. And, you know, what is the, like, I didn't know this, but Facebook is, is something that old people do, uh, and, and social media. So that's totally not the cool thing. So I get to, I get to learn all the really, you know, what's, what's the latest, what does that saying mean? And, you know, what are, <laughs> what are the cool, uh, uh, I guess, social media things to check out and, and even just like with pop music, you know, I don't know how, you know, you're sort of connected with pop music. Uh, but I know when I really, you know, got head, you know, pretty much left it pretty much. Yeah. You know, I was in a, a rock band for a little while, you know, when I was in high school and a little bit in college, but then I, I was diving into composition full-time, you know, writing orchestra music and chairman music and so forth and so on. And I just, I didn't have time for it as much. And so I kind of left with the nineties 
and um, you know really haven't connected with pop music in a serious way since you know say 2005 or so. And so my my daughter you know wrote me a list of all the songs I need to listen to. That's that's hot. It's on the top charts, and it's you know so that she keeps me informed about all the things that are going on. So that's, that's a good thing. That is a great thing. Yeah, I I, I definitely um, can relate to that because during undergrad and then a little bit into masters for me, um, I had the same sort of thing where I was so deep in composing that anything outside of the music that was, you know, dealt with like um, just composers in general, you know, uh, like the written, written music on paper, um, right. I wasn't really paying attention to. And then once I graduated in 2018, I, I literally went to Spotify. I went to the top 40, you know, top 40 playlist. Right. And uh yeah. And you're like, what is this? Yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, because you know as much as you might see, you know, that's talked about. Like, I mean, we've all known about Justin Bieber since 2008 or whatever it was, right? right. Um, but uh, um, that's great that your daughter made you a list and was like, Dad, you got to be up on this stuff, man. <laughs> yeah, because she's she's really interested. She's going to be 16 this uh, this November. So she's, you know, she's a sophomore in high school, and so it's going to be a few years and she's going to go off to college and uh, she's developed a real strong interest in writing her own songs. She has FL studio and she's been playing with that. And so she's been uh, very interested in creating, she's learning the guitar this coming year. She already learned piano for the past five years or so. So she's, um, she's on top of everything that's new. And so she always quizzes me. She's like, dad, do you know who this artist is? Dad, do you know this? And I'm like, I'm like an old man. No, I don't. What are you talking about? It's like, raise the cane, get off my lawn, lady. What are you doing? Uh, And she's, uh, she keeps me on my toes, keeps me informed. So. Oh, that's amazing. It's, it's funny hearing you say that because my mom and I used to play a game when I was a kid where, when we would be driving around, listening to the radio and I would try to guess who the artist was like, oh, it's Eric Clapton or like, you know, oh, this is uh, ACDC or Tom Petty or, you know, and she's doing that with you. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah, totally. And so. Of course, you know, I'm like, you know, the I'm of that generation, right? The ACDCs, the classic rock and so forth and so on. And so I was, uh, you know, some of the music that I'm, I'm hearing in the top, you know, I'm just not, I'm not going to probably connect to it like she is, but still it's good to know because when your students who are like, you know, I heard something like, what is, what is that joke where, um, you know, somebody pulls up to uh, a drive-through liquor place and then they, and the, and the person in the window, the clerk in the window says, you know, can I see your ID before you buy that? And um, they pull out their license and attempt to give it to that clerk. And the clerk goes, oh, don't worry about it. I already saw that there wasn't a 19. And, <laughs> you know, and then so it's just kind of a shock that, yeah, oh, my gosh, you know, uh, the people who are coming in as freshmen in, in my, at my university were born past 2000. This is just a little hard for, you know, a generation excerpt like myself, you know, to accept. So. Uh, it's uh, de- definitely a different kind of um, you know music environment, and and especially it's what's interests me. And I know you and I wanted to talk about this a little bit, is how you know musicians and uh, songwriters, composers alike, are going to make a living in the next several years. You know, what do I tell somebody who's coming in, who was born in two thousand and one or you know two thousand and two or so, who are going to be in the market in the next several years? What do I tell them, you know, is the path to take, you know, if you want to make money as a composer or, or a songwriter? And it's, it seems to me it's hard to catch, keep up with that, you know, because so much is changing. And so 
uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see where she goes. She might be telling me, you know, doing some consulting for me, you know, when it comes mm. to yeah, this is how this is how it's working in the industry right now. So that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting point to bring up, uh, particularly like yeah, because um, th- uh, this will be a, a, a good topic to go over is is how it seems that even in the classical field, there's been so much overlap with like pop music or mainstream music and stuff. Um, and, and so that, that in, in a sense is also blurring the lines of what a career looks like as a composer, kind of like right. what you're explaining right now. And I, I think, yeah, a lot of us like in, like I'm, you know, I'm 32 and I got my master's in t- 2018. So like I'm in that phase right now, like, what am I, what am I doing? Where am I going? You know, uh, what does this look like? <laughs> Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that's like, as far as like writing music, you know, and what passes as serious music that that's changing, right. Mm. Certain things that you could do, you know, so I got my, I'll say my bachelor's in 1996 and then I got my um, all the way through my doctorate to 2004. So that was still, you know, quite a year, a few years ago. And, um, even then, the idea was that what you did as a composer was that you got your doctorate degree, you got your position with a university, got tenure, and then you could write music. And if you are in a situation where your uh, university is a excellent performing arts school, you just have your orchestra and your band play your music, and uh, maybe you do a few gigs here and there. But um, pretty much, you 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 head to the path of becoming a university professor. And uh, that's your your paycheck for for many years. And I noticed that started to shift a little bit, you know, as I was actually going through my doctor uh, program, you know, around 2003 and four, you know, you probably probably have gone on the CMS list, you know, the College Music Society, where it's like, you know, uh, we were we're looking for a composer to teach theory. We're looking for a theorist who composes, something like that. But here are the other things that we want you to do as well, and it's a lot of it is technology. Mm-hmm. And you know, I started to notice that the uh, the job of just being a composer was starting to like get on the last part of the list of things that they wanted you to do in a position. You know, and I think I always say, you know, I, I tell people, you know, I think I took the last composition job because the the job I have with IU Southeast their first priority was we want a composer. And then if you teach theory, if you teach other things, that's great, but we want you to compose and that's how we're going to judge you, you know? And, but I think that's, that shifted, I think a lot in early two thousands. And so, um, and then the question is, is academia, you know, something that composers are going to be able to do in the future? I don't, I haven't been on CMS's list in a while, but um, my, my curiosity is when, uh, a lot of these baby boomers retire from their positions. Will that priority be there? You know, our university is going to take that budget line and say, we we still want a composer on our faculty, or are they going to say we want somebody who has a background in, in rock, uh, who wants a, who has a background in other kinds of music and other kinds of styles besides the traditional concert stage route? You know, so. That's really interesting. Um, the last time I was on the CMS website, I, I saw exactly what you said. It was a lot of um, things saying like a technological background. And most theory positions that I did see were actually looking for academic theorists, like someone who has works published in uh, a journal or, art- or articles published in a journal and stuff like that. Um, 
I'm curious when when you started realizing in the in the early 2000s when there was like that shift happening, do you recall what like what you were feeling at that time and and recognizing like, am I going to be able to shift along with this or am I going to be able to go in the path I was thinking? Like, I was still thinking of okay, I'm going to stick with the path that you know that I'm heading towards. Although I was getting, you know, I'm I'm one of these people. If I if I were to backtrack a little bit here, I'm not, you know, one of these people who get, you know, all the keyboard magazines, and I'm not a gear person, you know. So I don't I don't really thirst for, you know, um, diving into and, and getting into tech technology, or at least what we call technology back then. Uh, although you know, because for me, you know, technology or you know just software and and so forth has always been uh, a tool for me. And I'm one of these uh, composers who I just want to take it out of the box and start using it, you know, and I want to start creating right away because that's kind of where my drive and my motivation stands. And uh, I, but I knew I sort of in seeing that, that I had to gain something. So I, I actually took a lot of independent studies. You know, I had a traditional composition degree that, you know, you study your analysis and your theory and you do compositions and so forth, take lessons. But I actually went above and beyond that and just took independent studies, trying to learn latest software, sequencing software and notation, tried to, um, actually I did some independent um, uh, teaching as well in those areas. I tutored for a little bit. And so I wanted that background because I didn't want to go into a job in 2004 and say, well, I know how to compose. I can write on paper and, and that sort of thing. They're just going to be like, no. Uh, so, and that did actually help out because when I applied to IU Southeast, uh, they were in need of, of somebody to come in and redo the, the MIDI labs. They wanted somebody to come in and reconfigure uh, the music technology program. And the composer traditionally was the one who was always asked to do that kind of thing. You probably know that, you know, mm -hmm. it's like you know, the composer is always going to be the one who's going to toy with the latest and the greatest technologies. So that was the case in my position. So that's what I did. I, I built the MIDI lab. I built uh, the curriculum for the technology program and that sort of thing. But in my heart, I'm a, you know, I'm a composer. So I just, I like to, to write on, I write on the computer, but it's, it's still just old fashioned pitches on, on, you know, five lines and four spaces. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, that's interesting. I like, it makes me think about um, with with a lot of the schools today. It seems like uh, there's there's more programs for um, uh, God. Cal Arts has a program that's like because Cal Arts is already like very out there. You know, like they do the, they do like they operate in their own sort of way. Uh, what's the program like? Sonic something. Okay. Have you have you heard about this at all? Sounds familiar. Yeah. Oh, I can't see. I, I don't even remember well enough to explain it honestly. Um, but basically, like what you're explaining with how you found these independent studies that you wanted to do and that allowed you to cultivate other skills and stuff. Um, oh, it's like it's like a composer performance uh, um, like degree in a way. And I think it involves something with multimedia. Right. Um, but so I, I'm curious with with like your your path, you, you took these independent studies and stuff. I imagine that there are people who are willing to. Um, teach certain technological things separate from that of the university, like as an apprenticeship sort of thing. Do you know much about anything like that at all? As far as like an independent people or? Sure. Yeah. Like, like say for example, someone who might be teaching how to do um, pure data or uh, um, like Fruity Loops for like FL Studios uh, or 
um, I don't know, I can't think of any other sort of instances, like how to, how to project something onto a screen. <laughs> right. It's like technology adulting, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's, um, you know, what's interesting is that the pandemic, I think, one of the, if you wanted to say, you know, list any of positive things that came out of the pandemic was that uh, it, it forced everybody to become very adept with Zoom, like we're doing right now, and uh, and teaching online and so forth. And I know a lot of um, composer friends and, and, and a few uh, ac- people who are actually working at universities who are thinking about um, creating their own independent classes, not necessarily tied with the university, but just something that they can do to make extra money mm-hmm. and teaching those things because, um, you know, a lot of the curricula in music schools is still, they're still pretty traditional. And, you know, music programs, you know, you, sometimes there are so many credits that are involved that you have very little wiggle room to do electives, you know. And so uh, while you may be, let's say, a performance major and you're studying your instrument and you have to do theory, history and ear training and so forth, uh, you may not have time to take like three semesters of Adobe Premiere or, you know, some of the things that you end up finding in your adult life are like really important because unless you have $10,000 to hire a website developer and videographer, you need to do these things yourself. Mm-hmm. And you, most of us just learn this on the streets, right? We just, you know, go to YouTube or I'm sure you had to, there was probably a learning curve with um, doing this podcast even, you know, you had to figure out a few, you know, little little threads here and so i think there are more people doing that now there um i don't know of any particular program um that that you know focuses on that other than just you know you can take independent studies uh with um you know professors who are able to um to afford the time for that but you know but i i think you can probably i i think it's it's interesting because and i'm finding this with my program too is that um, you know, we talk about how the curriculum is filled up with a lot of things that, you know, it's certainly important. You know, we need to have good ears. We need to have some basis in theory. We need to, um, we need to be able to perform and compose well. So we have to learn all those techniques. But there are a lot of things, too, that we sort of need to learn. And um, sometimes we may not have time to do that after we graduate and we're forced to try to make, you know, a certain living and pay the bills, especially with, you know, healthcare and so forth. It's like, how do you, how do you come right out and start um, putting on a web presence and, you know, start making money as, as a musician. So um, I think you're going to start to see a shift a little bit in um, how universities design their curriculum so that that technology adulting is sort of built into the program. You know what I mean? Right. No. Yeah, totally. Uh, that's that's an interesting that's an interesting perspective, I, and it sounds really accurate, honestly. I mean, and and to your point about you know the pandemic and everyone sort of shifting in a way where they have to cultivate these skills with technology. And yeah, like this podcast right here, I had to learn how to use this video editing software. Um, and you know, yeah, like the first couple first couple times I used it, it was uh, it was a challenge. <laughs> you know, it took me hours. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's true though. I mean, so here's a question with with that regard. Do you to what degree do you think that with universities providing more uh, rounded curriculums that involve moving your career forward, like literally your career uh, as in earning an income, right? Do you think in it like 
how much do you think that might compromise one's ability to uh, become an exceptional composer? Or, or would it not at all? That's a, that's a good question because then, because I think the embedded question with that is, does say for instance, like an extra class in music history or an extra class in theory, or even uh, what, that one lesson, right? That's three credits and you take every you know semester and so forth. Are those things going to, let's say if they were cut out, would that sacrifice your ability to compose a really compelling piece of music. Mm. And um, so that's kind of a, it's an interesting question because on the one hand, as a you know a professor who is teaching at a university, you know, I wanna say certainly, you know, you need, you need those things. And, and you certainly do, um, you know, when it comes to um, oftentimes, you know, we think of undergraduate education as, as prepping for a master's or even, even, you know, further studies down the road. And so you certainly need those things. But when it comes to composition, you know, I think the best teachers are, you know, hanging around better composers than you uh, and reading a lot of scores. I mean, I think that's, um, you know, one of the things that I did, which helped me a lot, I think kept me on my toes uh, when I started working at IU Southeast. So I got hired in IU Southeast in 2004. And in 2005, I started this record label called New Dynamic Records. And there were a couple of reasons why I wanted to do that because, you know, part of me wanted, it was the altruistic side of, I wanted to support my field and I wanted to support composers. So it was one of these situations where, uh, you know, as a composer, if you were invited to have your piece recorded on one of our albums, you didn't have to pay a dime. You know, all you had to do is supply us with the sheet music. We, you know, flew in uh, the ensembles. We paid for the sound engineering. We paid for the, uh, the the flights, the hotels, and everything. You just had to bring your talents, and that was true for the performers as well. And um, it was a basically an eighteen thousand dollar an album, you know, endeavor. So I, but, and so that was kind of the you know Eric contributing to the field. Per, you know, type of path. But the other path was a little selfish in the sense that I wanted to see what composers of the 21st century were writing. What were people my age, what were people who were in their 20s and even, you know, in their 50s or 60s, what were the kind of stuff that they were writing today? What were they getting excited about? And it was a really interesting eye-opener into that. And I actually got uh, to see a lot of compositions that, you know, I think if I were to summarize what you know, the thing that I learned about music of this century, of what people are doing today, because we did all living composers. And there were no, you had to have a heartbeat, basically, to get on the albums. So uh, I learned that our generation, you know, old, you know, living composers are pretty much amalgamating everything that went, went on in the 20th century. And they're combining all these styles. So, um, which is kind of a good thing in the, in the sense that there's, there's hope that, you know, when people say, what is the you know, future of music look like. Well, we're still just starting to combine and take the good things from the 20th century and putting put them into something new and combine them and and see what we can get if we, we mix this style with that. Uh, and I got a really good education just producing those albums. I would I'm the guy that sat there and said, okay, cut. You need to do this over again. Cut. You know, and. Um, being in that hot seat, I was able to see the details because 
these players are amazing. And, you know, I had to, I had to find every single issue that they would, you know, have a problem with. So I, everything was, so I was sharply focused on everything that was going on notation wise. It was not passive at all. And I felt that by doing that, that was like a supercharged learning experience into the styles of these living composers. And so that, um, I think that is what, and that kind of affected me, I think, you know, if I look at my compositions, so I started the label in 2005 and I stopped it in 2017, funding kind of ran out. So, uh, and I got involved in other projects, but um, I would say between those years, I could see my own compositional uh, direction change a little bit and for the better, you know, I think I became a better composer. And um, so to that, to that end, to answer your question, I think if if I were to say what's going to make you a better composer is is looking at scores, looking listen to music of the composers of your generation. We we always have access to the older generations, right? We you know for the Bartoks and the Beethovens and Brahms and so forth. But see what's going on now, you know. And, and I think if you, if you could do that, keep that going, don't stop. Then you're gonna. That's that's the best education I I have found at least. Yeah, this kind of ties back to what you said earlier about, uh, like, you know, as a composer, when you get a new toy, you just want to break it out and start messing around with it. Right. You know, and so like, it's the same thing, like where you're, you're, you know, all right, I want to compose, let me see what everyone else is doing. How yeah. is that working out? And what, like, how do they handle like this, you know, I don't know, this type of transition or, um, yeah, that's, that's a, I, that's a really good, uh, uh, I think probably the, the best piece of advice for composers to develop the craft is, see what great people before them have done and what people today are doing right and i think that's that's something that you know people you know you don't think about as a composer after you graduate you know with your bachelor's or master's or doctor whatever stopping point you have in your education uh that doesn't mean that you're you are a perfect composer that you're going to be the best at that moment right you didn't learn that much you still have a lot to learn and so i think um yeah, I, I kind of wish there was like an adult composition learning camp, you know, that we can just go to periodically just to kind of refresh our and see what other people are doing. Um, but there's there's things like that going on. New Music Gathering is one thing that uh, I think is it's good to go to conferences like that just to kind of hear what people are doing. And so have you have you tried? Have you I haven't been to the New Music Gathering, but have you have you done that? Is, is that something? Yeah, actually, I was there. Uh, I did my master's at Bowling Green State University. And in oh. 2017, the New Music Gathering was at Bowling Green. Right. So I was really fortunate to be in that position where uh, it was it just it came to me. Um, and yeah, like, like you said, I mean, it's everyone who's who's working in the in the new music field right now. And not only just um, known people, but uh, people who are still in school, even, you know, the performances that are put on, um, there and like the different conversations that are taking place, like, um, you know, how do you start a 501c3 nonprofit, whatever it is, uh, um, networking, uh, there's like the composer, composer and performer speed dating. Um, yes, I did see that. Yeah. 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 Um, I had, uh, my friend Marianne Parker was on the podcast, uh, previously and, and she, she took part in that as well. Um, you know, it's just a quick little, like a networking event for a minute. You sit there across from a performer, you give your, your cards and, uh, this is the music I write, you know? <laughs> right. 
Exactly. Um, yeah. So it's, it is, it is, it, it, that's a really good example. Uh, New music gathering, I think is almost exactly what it is that you're explaining. Um, right. Or yes. the, type, the type of thing. Yeah. And you know, if, if that's not something, if you can't travel a lot or what have you, uh, you can also start your own ensemble. You know, this is something that I, um, this was advice that I got. This is kind of an interesting uh, way I got this advice. I was actually, um, when I graduated with my doctorate degree, it was 2003, and I thought that I was never going to be employed by university. You know, I was applying to a lot of jobs, and the job market was a little rough at that moment. And so I thought I was going to be an independent composer. So I wanted to know, okay, how do you make a living as a composer and just writing music and so forth? And so I started to... Um, uh, write a book that was that that dealt with these you know various issues it was uh, you know i planned on publishing it at one point but i just kind of used it as a manual for my composers um at my university but the um the composers i i actually interviewed two composers michael torkey and steve reich and um i called up you know steve reich and uh, his well his um howard stokar his manager uh hooked me up with and so i was able to do like a little, you know, phone, you know, thing and, and record that and so forth. And uh, he talked about his begin beginnings as a composer, you know, how, how he essentially didn't want to write what was being written at the time. And so he broke out on his own and um, started an ensemble, basically worked for the post office uh, during the day so that, it, you know, or during the weekends, I believe, and so that he could um, spend the days writing music and uh, forming this ensemble. He even drove the truck, you know, to um, different venues to, to do performances. And so uh, he said that forming the ensemble was the best thing, you know, as a composer because, you know, with his ensemble specifically, it was able he was able to get his music out there in the most visible way possible. But if you start uh, your own ensemble. You could also, like I do with, um, I have a group called Atonal, which is uh, sort of stationed here in Louisville. And um, we play pretty much mostly just living composers. We do some, you know, uh, composers from the past, but we, um, we commission pieces. We also, we, well, I would say 90% of the, uh, the works past, let's say the 19th century, the newer works are pretty much from you know, living composers. And so we, we actually are, um, you know, that's kind of a breeding ground for listening to and uh, because we get a lot of scores from people uh, who say, you know, we'd like for you to check out this piece and so forth. So that's a good way to also see, you know, what's being done out there and kind of give you as a composer an education about um, what, what, what some people in various walks of life are doing in their music. So it's kind of cool that way too. This is so fascinating to hear because you mentioned earlier how, how you started a label and that allowed you to see what other composers do and how that can inform your, your composition. And then you started an ensemble as well, which sort of doubled up on that in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, I think kind of circling back to what you were asking and, and that is, you know, uh, if if you if a uh, music curriculum had to change a few things or you know drop a few courses, would that affect you know your outcome as a composer? And I would say no, because there's there's so much that you can do 
uh, independently, you know, that I see a lot of people do, you know, and uh, certainly I would say the same thing of performers too. You know, uh, if you start your own ensemble as a performer or you commit to playing music of your time, you know, that makes you a better performer and it um, kind of pulls you outside of the traditional curriculum that you probably once studied under, you know, when you were at a university. So absolutely. It's, it's just keeping the creative juices flowing. That's important. Especially as a composer too, because like we're so, you know, we go in a room, we try to put this thing together that is like starting from a blank page. So like the, the creativity in, in having an, or putting an ensemble together and like how to make that ensemble like successful in some capacity, the type of creativity is very different there. Right. Yeah. And it also forces you to do the adulting things that we talked about too. Right. <laughs> I formed a 501c3. I had to do that. I, I worked with um, the volunteer lawyer for the arts here in Louisville. And we, we did, you know, an articles of incorporation. We did all the stuff that you need to do to form a uh, 501c3. I, I've written grants in my past life. I actually did a little stint with, um, a couple of nonprofits when I was living in Northern Virginia, I did, um, <clears throat> I worked, this is kind of an interesting job shift. So after my undergrad, I didn't immediately go into a master's program I actually worked for a year with the wildlife habitat council. I was, uh, their sort of grant writer slash development assistant. And then, uh, after I left that job, I worked for the national captioning Institute in, um, Northern Virginia. And so I had gotten sort of my, you know, my business and my, uh, grant writing skills from those jobs. I mean, they were very brief and I went right back into uh, my master's program, but it's, yeah, just take, take on responsibilities, you know, form groups, you know, uh, doing the, uh, the new music label was such an education in all aspects, you know, and it does help your composition career. And I, and I know you're, you have had Megan Einan on your podcast before and she's, you know, she's very much along those lines as well. I've talked to her about, you know, careers and how do you structure things. And so uh, it's, it's, there's a lot more than just music history in your training, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And Megan is exactly the person to talk to. <laughs> she is. We'll give a free advertisement for her because, yeah, she's really amazing. Yeah, this time it's free. Later on in the conversation, it's going to cost something, but. That's right. That's right. Check the center of Bill Manel, right? <laughs> yeah. You'll be getting an invoice from me, Megan, <laughs> for the Make a Noise podcast. Right. Uh, I, I have so many questions about all of that. And um, uh, I definitely want to talk about uh, America Buy and um, uh, some of the other things we, we had mentioned in the email. But um, it, would you mind going into how, like, from, like, say, like, ground zero, starting an ensemble, like, the idea comes to you. How did you go through that process of putting it together? Like, like what was your position in the ensemble? And, um, you know, and then you got to the point where you're like, people are sending you works now, right? Right. Yeah. Well, it was, it was certainly a, a slow process. It, you know, we're on our eighth season right now. I guess we're on our eighth if you discount the pandemic so we're not gonna we're not gonna talk about that year right it's like everybody's putting 2020 in a, in a box somewhere yeah but, um, yeah we're we've been around for all you know about eight years and but it was it was formed actually my um my now wife carrie ravenstem 
is a who's who's an amazing clarinetist. She's a bakun artist, and she does a lot of um, performances around the area and region. And uh, we were actually at a restaurant with a, a, a few uh, ensemble friends of ours, and we were talking about new music. And we were just like, you know, uh, for Louisville in particular, uh, we had kind of. Uh, thought that we wanted to see a little bit more, you know, I guess, more in Louisville in terms of uh, new music ensembles and, you know, who would we go to and so forth. And then it just, we kind of looked at each other and said, well, why don't we form a group, you know? And we started actually just, you know, we were on the steps of this re restaurant called Decca and we were talking about names. We were already forming names for the group or we like, you know, what do we call it if we're going to do a new music group? And uh, so we eventually settled on this, uh, this uh, sort of hybrid term, atonal. I mean, it's one term for, you know, a particular approach and composition. But if you take the A separately, you know, and the tonal, that means that we both uh, program and perform music that's tonal and sometimes music that's not. So we, and at the time, we were kind of thinking of it as an ensemble that would bridge the music of the past to the present. You know, in other words, so what is the similarities between Debussy and Takemitsu, which there are many, because mm. Takemitsu really loved the French Impressionist uh, style. So that was the kind of ensemble we wanted to become. And we ended up basically, um, so I was with, and I still am, with IU Southeast. That was kind of our home for a little while. So we gave a lot of concerts there. And so it's always good to kind of start an ensemble with somebody who um, has some connection to a venue. And But we've also had friends on the Louisville side of, of the place. There was a place called Dreamland uh, by a friend of ours, Tim. And he, he uh, loved to do experimental music and new music. So we played at his venue for a little while. And then um, we just, you know, it's one of these things where you do one season and the word gets out and you do another season and people start to, if you're doing good performances, you're programming interesting music, the word gets out and then you start to build a presence. And then, um, then we got our couple educational residencies. We went to uh, the Governor's School for the Arts. Uh, they invited us to, to do a presentation there and that we had a huge audience. It was like 250 students in a small theater and it was really awesome. Uh, but we also got to do things with the University of Louisville. And so that was a big residency, but we were starting to make money. And so we were thinking, well, I, you know, it, we don't want like one member just to assume all the taxes for this. So that's when we found that you know, we finally formed it into a 501c3 and uh, we started to think of it like a business. And so that's, so it just kind of evolved from sort of the garage band status that we started with, you know, just thinking, hey, it'd be cool to just do a band. And then uh, to this, you know, serious 501c3. And, you know, all, all along the way, we've always tried to keep it simple, you know, and not try to take on too much. And I think that's a big, if I were to give any advice to anybody thinking about forming an ensemble, I would say, think about that, you know, partner with venues that have a marketing team. So you don't do all the marketing yourself, you know, part. And we did that with the Kentucky Performing Arts Center. They're fantastic about that. And um, partner with uh, venues that have a series. So before the pandemic hit, we had actually scheduled an afternoon series with the Speed Art Museum in Louisville. And um, we were going to do, uh, it was like a Oh, another thing too is, is to kind of vary your audience. So in addition to the new music audience that we were cultivating, we wanted to get into dance. So we had actually 
coupled with this um, this dance group up in, uh, I think they're stationed in New Jersey. They do a lot of performances in New York, but it's called Ten Hairy Legs. And there are five guys that basically are their own dance company. And um, my wife, Carrie, was going to do New York Counterpoint. And uh, so that was uh, the, the piece that we were going to play at the Brown Theater. But, of course, that was canceled. And so we had to, uh, we're, you know, maybe next time. But um, varying our, you know, the disciplines that we wanted to collaborate with was something that kept our energies alive. And it kept the group alive. And because there's so much, it's not just you know, a new music, let's focus on new music audiences only. There's so much out there that you can you can work with and people who are normally go to dance concerts or concerts that involve dance, um, really, you know, coupled with new music uh, can sort of see a completely different world. And we wanted to, we we want to be a part of that at some point. So we'll see. Well, the, I, I, I really like so much that you said in there. The, the dance aspect is really interesting and uh, a great a great connection to your uh, America by project. Um, right. But um, uh, I like the one thing you said about um, uh, uh, finding finding someone having someone who who might have a connection somewhere because I think all of us have connections with someone somewhere that we might not even realize we have especially after going through school and everyone that you meet and like your professors from that university and stuff being able to use those resources in some capacity. Right. Right. And, and also thinking about not just, well, Hey, we want to put on a concert, but you know, what, what can we do? That's um, kind of a package type deal. So you may give a master class, you may do some kind of residency where you work with dance students, for instance, and so don't think of your chamber ensembles just being, well, we're going to get on a stage and everybody's going to clap and then we're going to close the curtain and go home. So think about recording, you know, think about, you know, Zoom cer certainly is, you know, not the end all be all, but it certainly opened up a new avenue for um, collaboration and, and just, you know, can, can you work with, I know it's a lot of work on the end of like actually putting it together, you know, in a, uh, like a program like Adobe Premiere or what have you, but um, can you do collage collaborations? And um, so there was an interesting uh, idea that came out. It was uh, the River, River City Orchestra, I think, um, down in uh, Texas did the, uh, an interesting idea, which I thought was really cool. And that was they partnered with parks in the area and they had uh, these QR codes that they um, uh, that the park folks, I guess, just uh, embedded in these different um, areas on the, along the park, and those actually linked to musical recordings that this orchestra did that uh, was inspired by that area in the park. And so, if you're just walking along and you have your smartphone, you could just go up with a QR code reader, and all of a sudden, in your earbuds, you have this piece that was inspired by this area that you're walking through at that moment. I thought that was such a cool idea. It's like, wow, uh, we can get outside of, you know, the theater, the auditorium. And so, yeah. What a great, that's amazing. I really like that idea a lot. And I want to experience that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had thought about doing that with the America by project and, um, you know, because oftentimes, so I'll, I'll just kind of, I don't know if I'll go ahead and explain it a little bit for those of you who don't know, uh, America by is basically, a project that I started in, uh, gosh, 2013, I think. 
And uh, it's a project where I write music for different orchestras uh, around the country in, who reside in different states. And I write pieces uh, that are about the cities or the towns in which those orchestras reside. So my first project was with the um, Bainbridge Symphony Orchestra. And Bainbridge is an actual island that's off of a little bit, you know, it's a ferry ride, about 20 minute ferry ride from Seattle. And uh, it's, a, it's a small community, but very arts minded and very vibrant community. And so, and they have a really cool history. Uh, some of it is a little dark because it's, it's um, you know, it's one of the pilot sites for the internment camp program. So I kind of incorporated some of the, the music, uh, spoke to that um, part of the history. But my goal with the project really is to write music about those places and have them keep those pieces as their own, right? So every area or city, you know, region or what have you that I write about is titled with that region, you know, in mind. So Bainbridge was literally the first piece I wrote for that island. And um, yeah, it's it's one of these things where, you know, you have, you get one or two performances when uh, my first uh, premiere with uh, Bainbridge uh, Island Symphony Orchestra, it's, the, it's a kind of a, uh, semi-professionals community orchestra uh there were two performances uh given uh, on a weekend and that was it so i thought how cool would it be if i could get a recording do something like you know you know put that little qr code and just put it right there someplace on an island i don't know if it, there's like a little plaque or something like that uh where people can just kind of enjoy that you know f from that point forward and, and and hear about it and so forth so I think there's yeah there's a lot of um, there are a lot of ways that you can you can be a composer and put out your music besides just the a regular concert hall. But Merkabah was kind of one of those things. And now um, and my latest uh, project is with the James Madison University Symphony Orchestra. So we actually uh, it hasn't been uh, you know officially announced on their website and everything, but I could say it. It's March five and it's going to be in 2022. 2022 is going to be crazy. I think everybody's going to start playing concerts. And yeah, uh, yeah we could talk about that definitely. But March 5 is going to be the official premiere day. And um, this is a piece about Shenandoah. And it's because James Madison University is in the Shenandoah Valley. And it, they're specifically in the city of Harrisonburg. Uh, but they, um, but I wanted to expand this to the entire region because I actually went to school there. That was where I got my undergraduate from. And they are an amazing orchestra. And so it was one of these things I knew I could do a lot of really cool things with uh, musically uh, to speak about the region, you know. And so um, the performance itself, it's, it's going to take place in this. They have a, a place called the Forbes Center for Performing Arts, a beautiful place that they just, I, I say they just, but they've had the hall for many years now, but didn't have one when I was an undergrad there. It's amazing. <laughs> very amazing facility and um they have a projection screen system that what we're going to do is uh during the live performance we're going to project actual footage from the Shenandoah region uh that some that i took some that others took and then uh embedded within that there are going to be uh dance elements in it and i'm working currently with uh, a dancer ashley thursby from the louisville ballet and we're going to um film a couple dance uh, 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 I guess sections in, into this piece 
And so that dance, uh, those dance elements are going to portray sort of the memories of the past uh, because Shenandoah is a place that, you know, it's, it's changed, but it's there are a lot of parts of it that are the same. And so it's a really, it's kind of, uh, there's an element of beauty in that way um, about it. And so dance elements are going to be about memory and then all the footage is about the present, you know, and so uh, really looking forward to that. But the cool thing about the America by project is that number one, I get to write about places around the country. Um, I get to, to do something that's outside of just, it's about Eric Stem. I can, I can write about a community. And the fun thing is that when I'm working with these people, they, they really do appreciate, uh, you know, when I work with members of the community, the orchestra, you know, members, the directors and so forth, they really do appreciate the fact that you're paying a lot of attention to their town. Mm. Because oftentimes, you know, when you go to orchestra concerts, whether it's in Montana or California, or if it's in Texas, it's usually the same pieces, right? Mahler, it's about, you know, <laughs> Mozart, Beethoven, and so forth. You know, how cool is it that now a composer is coming around and doing something uh, that they can kind of put their hands on and, and say, oh, yeah, I know about that place. Yeah, it's kind of cool. So it's been a lot of fun. It's, it's one of the things that when when uh, uh, we had uh, we had met through social media um, and uh, uh, learning about this project is one of the things I, I was uh, I thought was just completely a fantastic idea. And it's so interesting to see that it's been going for nine years now and, and definitely no end in sight. Um, what what is it like? Uh, so you do you travel to each one of these cities, right? Yeah. So basically, the cycle is about two years. And what I do for the first year is I, after contacting the conductor and selling the person on the, the piece and the idea, uh, essentially I go there and I just learn about the town. You know, I, I film, I talk to people, I talk to the musicians, and I talk to the director. So like, for example, Bainbridge Symphony Orchestra, when I went there, I had never been to Seattle before. I had never been to uh, Washington State. And so, and especially Bainbridge Island. So that was just kind of a really cool education for me as an American citizen, you know, going to a state I've never been to before. And so, um, but I, when I got to the island, um, the director, Wesley Schultz at the time, uh, basically uh, hooked me up with... Um, uh, Dick Heine, who's the bass trombonist of the orchestra, and 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 Dick was just like the he's like an encyclopedia of knowledge about Bainbridge Island, and he just took me around. We drove around, saw all the you know the big landmarks and different sites of the island, and just gave me an education and set me up with. And this was a very special and amazing moment. Uh, he set me up with. Um, Lily Kadama, who is an internment camp survivor, uh, who was seven years old when she was uh, escorted off of the island uh, to Manzanar, I think was the place that they took at least the first round of uh, citizens. And um, we met at the uh, Japanese Exclusion Memorial, which is this uh, place that um, the island made for their Japanese American fellows. And uh, was actually built on the very dock that they walked out on when they got on the boat and were taken off. And it was a very important project for not only the island, but also just for them to, to express their gratitude 
uh, because Bainbridge Island, as, as a community, was completely against this program. I mean, you have to remember the internment camp program was a it was a um, it was an executive order that was you know uh, filed by FDR at the time, and there were a lot of citizens who were just like totally it's unconstitutional and da 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 da. And so um, Bainbridge Island, when when it ended, you know everybody came back. They just welcomed them with open arms. It was one of the few communities that did that, and um, she spoke with a lot of appreciation. For, for her friends and people that she spent time with. And so it was a really interesting interview. And I, it's actually, if I may do a little plug here, it's on the um, America by website. If you go to Bainbridge Island, you'll see the interview with uh, Lily Kadama. But it, it's, um, I learned so much just about, and, and at one point I remember thinking, I forgot about writing music, you know? <laughs> Um, I was so immersed, you know, in what was going on with just in learning about the entire experience, their history and so forth. I was like, wow, okay. Oh, that's right. I'm writing a piece. Okay. So yeah. I, uh, I ended up actually incorporating uh, elements because there was a lot of Japanese immigrants who came to the island uh, back in uh, way back then. And um, I incorporated Japanese shakuhachi elements. I, I, I put in um, a mixture of some uh, music that I thought represented what the island was like today in this vibrant art community. So it's, um, yeah, it, I think I, I've, I love it. And it's one of these things too, that I don't feel like I have to do everything every year. It's not like an Anthony Bourdain kind of contract, you know, I can sort of take things as they come. And so, mm. yeah, definitely will will go on in perpetuity. I think as long as I'm alive, I guess. Right. Yeah. Oh my God. What a powerful experience that sounds. That sounds like. What What was the uh, What was the reception from the crowd after the first performance of the piece? It was amazing. Uh, they They. I had usually when um, I have a chamber piece or you know I have an orchestra piece performed where it's just regular. You know, here's my symphony number one or what have you. Um, I'll get like you know. Uh, 10 people that'll come up to me and say, Hey, good job. Like your piece. You know, some people who don't like it will say, Hey, that's an interesting piece. You know, you need to get that, <laughs> that, uh, feedback, but, um, interesting you know, is code for, I didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of look on their face of fear. And, uh, so, so yeah, I kind of, I usually get that, but with this performance, I probably stayed after for about a half an hour, 40 people, just after the whole thing. And, and I think part of that was, you know, in addition to, hey, this was a piece about our you know, town here, about our island, this is really cool. But it, um, they were just really, I think, grateful and just um, very, uh, you know, interested in why I was doing it, you know, because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not many people are, you know, see, see a composer, somebody who also creates a website, you know, um, does, film or I guess uh, does interviews with the musicians and the directors and so forth and actually does some kind of like post documentary about it and so they they were just very interested in the entire project and um, uh, I just I had wonderful conversations and you know when I, I did uh, the there was a piece I did for the Arlington Philharmonic which was in Arlington Massachusetts I'd written about two specific areas. One movement was about Spy Pond. There was an actual pond in the community. And another was called Robins Farm Park. And that was this park. It's a huge hill that kind of overlooks, um, you know, it 
the entire town of Arlington, but has a really beautiful um, sort of look into the skyline of the Boston skyline because Arlington, Massachusetts, is about it's about ten minutes west of uh, Boston, and uh, it's also a place where a lot of people go to sled down when it's like you know snowy during the winter season and they have a great jazz festival there they also have all kinds of community gatherings at this hill and um i got so many stories about like people who had lived in arlington for years uh saying that when they were like you know 15 years old they would sled down this part of the hill called suicide hill and it was uh it was called that because like there's this huge drop and there was a rock at the bottom and so if you didn't stop your sled at this moment you would flip over and go into this i mean it would be a total disaster so what the community did and i took a picture of this the community actually put a bunch of hay, hay bales on the end of this this suicide hill so to speak so so if anybody got out of control in their toboggans or whatever they would fly into this hay bale and so I got all kinds of stories like that. And it was kind of really interesting to just, you know, hear their stories in addition to what I filmed or what I gathered. So I, I like that a lot. Suicide Hill sounds like a trip. <laughs> I told him, I said, There's a, that's a fourth movement right there. Suicide yeah, Suicide Hill. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's kind of interesting to hear you talk about this because it sounds like what you're, what you're providing is almost like a musical time capsule for each town. You know, like those time capsules where they bury stuff in the ground from like 1960 and then the mayor of 2020 is like, let's dig it up and see what people were, you know, like. Right. You know, yeah. but, what, what were they writing about? Or like, you know, 2060, you know, there's there's some composer that, you know, wrote about this one little town. And we and we see that all through, you know, uh, we see that with you know, jazz. We see that with a lot of different musical styles that. Um, that kind of uh, composers connect to a community. They connect to their own place, mm -hmm. and it's it's interesting to he hear what you know how they use music to interpret the scene at the time. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I I see composers doing this now, and it's it really fills my heart because I I think that's just um that that makes it memorable, and it's also connecting composers to a broader you know audience so to speak and um you know of course there's also the personal mission which is that you know i'm i have a you know and it, part of me is a little bit of experimental uh you know um thirst for not just doing something that works but also giving something a little new that maybe they haven't been exposed to before so musically and um so there's there's a little bit of that it's kind of like pushing the art form forward you know Mm. yeah yeah definitely uh I, I had a similar thought too about kind of um bridging that gap with the you know the obscurity of a composer and then like uh people who might not be as 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 privy to classical music or anything um particularly with the america by project like interviewing people and stuff and uh that that's that's really fascinating i like how you mentioned that uh you forgot you were even writing a piece when you were visiting bainbridge <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because I I started to take a lot of the roles of a you know a journalist almost and or a travel guide so to speak and I actually um, did an interview with this travel site called Just Chasing Rabbits and so it was kind of an interesting um, like tie-in with what I was doing because I had never thought that like being a composer 
I would actually interview and talk to a travel site, you know, like you go on the web and they talk about their travels. But I, I talked to, yeah, I uh, talked to a couple people who were, um, you know, who were mainly, I believe, from Mississippi, but they um, they had traveled the United States as well as the world, and uh, they basically had a travel blog. And so I approached them. I said, you know, I'm actually kind of doing the same thing, but I'm doing it through music and not necessarily just writing about it and so forth. And would you be interested in interviewing and talking about uh, how music can tie into, you know, people's experience with a new place they've never been to before? And she thought the idea was really cool. And um, now, you know, I think one thing that I wish I could do more of is record the music that, you know, I compose. And so the only piece that has been recorded was the one I did with the um, University of Portland Orchestra. And that was about the city of Portland. And I did that with an overseas orchestra, but I'd love to do some more recordings. And actually that's going to happen with the Shenandoah project. So JMU Symphony Orchestra is going to do a, uh, because I'm an alumni there, uh, they're going to do a compilation of uh, JMU composers and that piece is going to make it on there. So I might do another single release at some point as well. It's so fantastic. Like this, this project, it seems like, like even you're even explaining, sorry, my phone is going off. Um, uh, like what you're explaining, how it, it can just branch out in so many different directions. And like, like you got interviewed by a travel that you, you know, uh, you're being featured on the, as an alumni on this compilation. Um, and, and I mean, obviously there's just, you know, you can continuously write music for more and more cities throughout the country and uh and it could be marketed and and used in different ways like you said the one um is it in, in uh, uh madison the one with the dancers and everything oh yeah so yeah jmu with the the dancing element in it yeah yeah, yeah. And, and and you mentioned there how that's now bridging that like that uh audience of classical and dance and everything um it, it's I, I love that. I love like the the multimedia and the uh, overlapping, like we talked about earlier, the overlapping like classical and mainstream and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that's like um, something that I, I see as almost um, almost a, a vital part of you know, the change that's happening right now with with composition, because Yes, we still do have our, you know, typical concerts that we give in auditoriums and halls and so forth and so on. And that's that's still kind of very important because there are some things that you you really can't do outside of a, of a concert hall. Like if you're trying to really experiment, you know this, uh, you know, with, with timbres and certain sounds, um, you know, you can't do this on an outdoor concert, you know, and um, you can't, you may not grab an audience that is used to listening to John Williams. Uh, you're not gonna probably grab them as much as you would. So there are some things that you know can't change and that I think um, is important. Although, you know, I think um, it's so important to have experimental composers too. Um, I'm kind of moving on to, to this thought because I know I saw the video that you um, you did on your website where you're basically showing the the collaborative process of uh, what it is, you know, quote unquote, do you call yourself an experimental composer or just a composer? How do you? 
yeah I, I would definitely put experimental in there for sure yeah okay yeah so as an experimental composer you are basically looking for new sounds and i thought it was really cool how you you addressed that collaboration this is what i i ask you know the performer to do this and so forth and then that's how it sort of serves as a as a spur to the composition itself and then your your job is to take these sounds that you you found and put it in some kind of structure i thought that was really cool how you did that and that is that is so important to continue and to do because and even to to have as part of the the package of things we do as a composer um i think one of the things and i know it's like boy i wish i could do this if i had more time one of the things i wish i could do more is is works that you know kind of push that envelope um in addition to some of the more symphonic and cinematic stuff that i do with say pro you know uh projects like america by and so forth uh because i think you know exploring new sounds is is something that our future audiences deserve you know mm -hmm. they really because there's so much more to say and um and different ways of saying it and so i think that's um you know, I think, you know, kind of living in as many worlds as you can really not only helps the, the career path and, the, you know, the, the portfolio and so forth, but also helps you as a composer. And um, you can give a little bit each time uh, to an audience that's not familiar with things. So, Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like what you said about we owe, we owe that to the future audiences. Mm -hmm. it makes me think a lot about um like barrios sequences okay. like th those are still like so prevalent today and referenced all the time whenever someone's trying to do something interesting with a very specific instrument right. um and 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 you know because he 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 like you took on this like multi-decade long project you know um and was able to just kind of do like a deep dive and see like okay what can we do and because of that now we benefit from his hard work as listeners, as composers, as performers. Now the ability of each instrument has been expanded, you know? Right. Um, and, well, yeah. think, think of it like this. What would the scene in The Shining, what would that be like? You know, where, where uh, he goes nuts and starts chasing his wife. <laughs> what would that be like without Pindarecki? That's a good question. I can't imagine a minor triad bringing that out in, in, in the way that Pindarecki's music brought it out. And, you know, it's just, that's, you know, to, to just to go along with your thought, that took some, that took a courageous director, Stanley Kubrick. I actually heard that, this is kind of an interesting story. I don't know if this is true, though. We'll have to double check this. But uh, Stanley, I mean, you know, he likes to take, New, or used to like to take um, new music and put it into his, his movies. And I think he put, um, and it was, uh, was it Ligeti's Luxaturna or one of, one of Ligeti's, maybe it was Atmospheres into the film 2001, but he did it without asking Ligeti's uh, permission. Did you hear this story? I have, yes. Yeah, and he, like, I think Liggy was at like a film festival and he saw this premiere and he said, hey, man, this is my piece. What's going on? <laughs> and I, I think they worked something out, but he ended up doing more stuff with them, which was really cool. But um, but yeah, to have a director that that goes, that not only, you know, composers, yeah, we, we owe it to future audiences, but directors say, it's my job to find new sounds so that it makes the scene even more powerful. I think that's kind of, 
yeah, we owe it to future audiences, definitely. Oh, that, that's a that's a beautiful statement too. Um, yeah, it makes me think back to our conversation earlier where you briefly mentioned uh, Takamitsu informed by WC and his impressionism. Um, have you have you seen any of the films that Takamitsu scored at all? Uh, bits and pieces, like Black Rain, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm forgetting the title of the uh, the movie where the woman falls in the sand. Uh, woman in the dunes that's it yes yeah yeah bits and pieces but um it was actually there was a kind of a documentary that was done on takamitsu's music Uh where several directors were interviewed and he i think spoke a little bit but most of the shots of him were him working with directors themselves and so forth and talking about the different styles but um yeah i saw a little bit of the music I think one of the first Takamitsu CDs I uh, bought was one where of his film works. Oh, really? Like Black Rain, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting con- like uh, um, putting his concert works side by side to his uh, his film scores. There's there's uh, um, that's always something that I I because I, <clears throat> I had I had seen Woman in the Dunes and um, uh, uh, what was another one I saw um, Ran. Or I think it's pronounced Ron. I don't know how to say it from like okay, the eighties. Yeah. Um, but in that one, uh, I think it was Akira Kurosawa directed Ron. Uh, he he wanted Takamitsu to do like a Mahler esque score, and Takamitsu was like, "Well, why don't you just use Mahler then, man?" <laughs> <laughs> he was a little insulted by it, you know. Like, That's funny. Yeah, I don't see him doing that at all. Yeah. 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 Well, I- tunes by the beatles but like yesterday but he won't uh, do anything for it yeah oh yeah yeah i have that score too the arrangements of um the guitar uh do you is that what is that what your instrument is you play guitar i play violin that was my formal instrument but uh no okay okay yeah because you said earlier you were in a rock band in high school right oh yeah i played keyboards so mm. yeah that was why back in the day when i had hair so it was, right yeah yeah me too yeah, a while ago yeah you know the feeling i do it's hard to to jam out when you're 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 splitting the ball book so um yeah yeah there's like head banging is not an option anymore (laughs) not an option anymore yeah the momentum of the hair it actually makes a difference (laughs) you need to get wigs just uh you know the theatrical i I would look terrible in a wig i i couldn't i'll i'll do it but i I would not pull it off well mine would fall off with my luck it would fall off in the middle of the concert I don't know how people even keep them on their head like do they have to use some sort of adhesive or like i i imagine yeah you'd have like if you're gonna do head banging i would imagine that you would have to have like a staple or some kind of button situation going you know do you, do you think rockers who are now in like their 70s or so do you think they have some sort of wig going on now that like you know like iron maiden well i don't even know i don't think iron maiden is that old but uh you know <laughs> yeah gosh i I think some of them just like, um, you know, I think they, the ones who have gone bald, you know, just deal with it. They just enjoy it. Yeah. They just, they're committed. They're just like, you know, I'm bald. Yes. But I'm, I'm not going to worry about, you know, (laughs) putting on a wig and trying to be like I was when I was in my twenties. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting. Um, You know, I'm sorry. I was listening to some music. Oh, no, that's fine. (laughs) I don't know if you heard that. But uh, but yeah, I think there was um, 
yeah, there were, like you look at some of the rockers today and some of them actually are still going on, like the Rolling Stones, good night. I mean, look at those, those guys, Mick Jagger, he's still, he's still, he's still rocking it out. I think uh, they were going to, they did a recent documentary on uh, Paul McCartney. Uh, mm. did, you, did you get a chance to check that out or? I saw, is that with, um, is it uh, Rick? What's his name? The producer. Um, oh yeah, I know. With the beard, a long, like, yeah, uh, I can't remember his name. Um, yeah, but it's just like kind of them two talking a lot, right? And they're kind of listening to different songs on the, on the, uh, in the studio. Yeah, I want to say it was a recent documentary, so. But just to, you know, to listen to some of, you know, <clears throat> Paul McCartney's putting out music still. He's still writing songs. And I think it's just his, his you could he hear that his voice has changed a little bit, you know. Yeah. Uh, he's an older man singing, but still it's the, the energy is still there, I think. And I, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's still kind of cool to see the old rockers rock out. You know? Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's amazing. I mean, uh, yeah, that's a, good, that's a good example right there with um, Paul McCartney. Mm -hmm. um, you know the you know the comedian Mark Marin? No, I don't. No. He has a he has a podcast called WTF Podcast, and um, he uh, he talked. To, uh, I can't remember who he was with, but he was explaining the story where his buddy kind of recently, like the last couple of years, his buddy was like, "Hey man, I got tickets to go see Rolling Stones. You want to go check it out?" And he's like, "Dude, they're like in their seventies. It's not going to be the same." <laughs> and, uh, and he went to the show, and he said he was completely blown away, like like legitimately at at like Mick Jagger is still being able to strut and like the energy and stage presence like yeah I mean he he kind of did it right though I would think because if you look at Billy Joel for instance mm -hmm. Billy Joel would flip around on the stage and you know jump on dive on pianos and so forth and so on and he kind of I think he actually broke his hip on in one concert I don't know if that was when he was in uh, overseas at some point but now you know Billy Joel is like, you know, kind of sitting down and just you know, grabbing his back and, you know, his, his voice is still wonderful. I mean, so I don't, don't want to cut on him, but he's uh, definitely not dancing. But, uh, you know, Mick Jagger, he kind of like, he paced himself. You know, he did, he had some really cool moves, but he wasn't jumping and spinning around and, you know, doing the splits all the time. So I think he kind of like, he, he did it right for the longevity of, you know, having a good stage presence, I think. Yeah. Well, you know what I, I kind of feel like is with Mick Jaggers, he was just kind of being himself, like doing his own thing, which right. was not so much like theatrical or uh, acrobatic in a way, you know? Right. Like I think about like David Lee Roth and just like jumping high in the air and like, you know. Um, yeah. What, oh, Steven Tyler used to do backflips. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> He's not doing backflips these days. Yeah, he's not. No, <laughs> or I don't know. Maybe he is. I haven't seen any any footage of Aerosmith performing in a long time. So, um, right. yeah, admit he could very well be, but I don't imagine it's going over very easily. Yeah, I think there's probably like a mattress underneath or something. Like yeah, that. yeah. Now they give him a trampoline and like <laughs> right, exactly a little bit extra. But it is it is interesting because I remember thinking like in when I was younger i guess in 2000 or something like that when you know the older rockers started to, to age a little bit i you know was curious if they were going to carry it on through their 60s and 70s and a lot of them have and it's quite amazing to see that they they're you know even though rock and roll so to speak or heavy metal what have you that's that was all pretty much for a younger 
world, you know, they've made it into a classical, no, senior citizens can do it too. Watch us. We can right. <laughs> rock it out just as good. I don't know if you, you know the comedian Jim Brewer. Oh, yeah. I love Jim Brewer. He has this really funny bit about classic heavy metal stations like ACDC for your grandparents, where the grandparents <laughs> are going to be in the backseat of the car going, come on, Rush, bring out the, you know, and uh so he was gonna he was talking about how the grandchildren are gonna be appalled by grandpa back there head banging and oh my so, god yeah he's he's got a funny bit about that but it's true they're still doing it so that's what makes that joke so good is because it is true <laughs> it is well Watch there's this the wheelchairs yes he he yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, they're in their wheelchair just going in a circle, <laughs> kicking <laughs> each other. <laughs> they stick their cane into the other person's wheel. Like <laughs> It's like you know, the, the workers are like, going, oh, my gosh, don't do this. Like, don't worry about it. We do this all the time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I, that's one of the things I love about comedians is their observational skills. It's just like, because that's what they do for a living. They observe. Oh, yeah. Know? And they just take these things and it's like, they think about things that like your everyday person wouldn't actually think about like that. Like, Oh, one day ACDC rockers are going to be 70 and 80 years old. And Right. Yeah. And I, I've really you know, gotten into Jim Brewer stuff because he was, you know, still into stand up. Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's kind of interesting because he has kids that are, I think my age actually. And so he's, or the, my kid's age. Um, mm. So he's uh, you know, he kind of, is a parent he's gone through the sandwich generation thing where he had aging you know, parents and little kids at the same time and so he talks about that a lot and makes jokes about that so it's kind of like uh, it's kind of fun to grow along with a comedian who's going through the same things that you are and so it's, it's mm. kind of cool to see that but, that's uh, that's pretty cool it's uh it's it's weird for me because like i I didn't actually really start liking Jim Brewer until recently. Hmm. And I, I grew up in North Northwestern, New Jersey. He lives like he lived like 30 minutes south of where I live in New Jersey. Really? And I never got to go see him perform. I never like because I, I had never followed his comedy or anything. Right. And and so like hearing you talk about this stuff now, it's like, oh man, I, I, I should have, you know. I mean, is he's he's still performing, but I mean uh, it would have been extra convenient at that time. Yeah, it would have been really cool to yeah hear Goat Boy and all that stuff, all the older you know things that he was like pulling out at, at the time. Yeah, I, I I'm gonna hear Jim Gaffigan actually. I was given this as a birthday present from my wife. Uh, we're gonna hear Jim Gaffigan, in, um I want to say it was, it's September or October. So, but that's the first. I'm 48 years old, and that's the first comedian like famous comedian I'm gonna see live. And we're gonna oh be really? To the front row, yeah first time so don't feel bad if you've never been to you know a comedy show like that because yeah this this will be my first time and it's like yeah, i'm looking forward to it it's gonna be interesting yeah that's that's so exciting and especially with jim gaffigan too yeah i yeah, um trip. yeah yeah I'm, I'm a huge fan of stand-up comedy so um and and especially now that like everything's starting to open or everything's like a lot of places are open up now you know um, right I mean, here here in Chicago, like the city has been like almost fully, pretty much fully open for a while now. Um, right. And so my girlfriend and I are, have actually been looking into seeing, you know, uh, is Bill Burr coming around or like? Oh, I love Bill Burr. Oh my god. I love Bill Burr. <laughs> yeah. 
any of the sarcastic comedians, you know, I know, was it Lewis, C.K. Lewis? He's, Louis C.K. Yeah, Louis C.K. Yeah, he's, he's you know, he's, a, he's an edgy guy, but, you know, he's, he's, he's fun to watch. And, uh, but, you know, Jerry Seinfeld, you know, some of the older comedians, I, I was a Jerry Seinfeld fan for, for a long time. You know, I watched the show and what have you. And I'm also a Larry David fan, so I love, you know, Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's just, that's, that's so much. So, so much of what, you know, we go through as artists, you know, you could see a lot of parallels, but um, yeah, it's funny how all these older comedians are going back to what they were doing when they were in their twenties. And that's, right. that's kind of nice to see as a composer, because it's like, well, you know, if they're doing that, then why can't I do that? So it's, there's no, you know, you're not retired and you, you, you never stop creating. So it's kind of cool to see that. That's that's so true, though. And it's funny you say this, because uh, when Marianne was on the podcast, we had a kind of similar conversation about the connection between composing and being a comedian and how, like, okay. in both instances, you have to sort of uh, uh, develop your skill set uh, through trial and error, you know, where comedians, they get feedback in real time, because if no one laughs, it's like, okay, well, that didn't work, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and for us, it's like, you know usually through rehearsals but sometimes you don't get to hear it until the performance finally you know um right and you gauge it by how many people come up to you afterwards and say oh that's an interesting piece thank you adam it's <laughs> interesting yeah that's the one review yeah <laughs> scratching the chin like oh good job eric uh yeah i'll see you later man got um got things to do i think i think my favorite thing with with uh an audience response is is when someone has something to say about the piece that they relate to it with, with like with their own sort of uh story or whatever like like if you have program notes for your piece and they're like oh i read the program notes and like i didn't really get that but like it made me think of this thing when i was a kid with my grandparents or something and it's like that's exactly what you should be experiencing right yeah i i i like that too i think that's probably the greatest uh form of a compliment about any piece is when so, you know, an audience member takes it as their own and relates it to their own experience because it, it's, it shows that, you know, they're, they're going to take your music and that you did the job that you were supposed to do, right? You're supposed to connect to them in some level, but they're, they're going to take it and appreciate it so that next time they hear a different piece of yours, um, it's like you got, yeah, you, you, you know that there are people out there who are connecting to your music, so... Mm. So, but there, you know, some things that you're going to do, and I've experienced this, everybody has experienced this, but there are, you know, things that aren't connecting and you sort of, you, you change it, right? You tweak it and you go, well, I, I get, I, you know, and so oftentimes, you know, people will say, well, you're, you're a composer, you're supposed to just do what you want to do, right? You don't want to listen to the audience. You want to kind of like basically compose in a separate island and what have you, but I, I don't see anything wrong with, you know, taking in the feedback and letting an audience in some way kind of direct what you do, because after all, isn't it about that um, connection? You know, isn't that why you're doing the live performance? You know, so. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing about composing is like, at, like we're, we're composers insofar as like we put music on paper, but that music isn't anything until someone actually, you can hear it. Right. And then and then like the um like yeah, like you're saying, like the sort of entertainment value and connecting with the audience and and uh um 
I'm I'm curious. So with the America By project, because that's um, the the pieces are 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 very programmatic. Have you ever found, or how do I ask this? Um, have you struggled at all trying to connect the programmatic programmatic elements to the actual musical material? Yeah, I think sometimes it it gets into a little bit of a struggle when, um, for instance, you know, and you know how this goes when you're writing a piece of music. Sometimes it develops its own personality, mm -hmm. or you're almost thinking, you know, this next measure or this next part of the piece would sound really cool if it did this. And then it almost all of a sudden develops a personality that's outside of what you're trying to evoke, you know, and, or that would sound a little out of place if you were trying to fit it as, hey, this, this evokes this scene, but it actually evokes something completely different. Um, yeah, that happens all the time, I think. And so, you know, what I do in that case is I often just let the music breathe, let it do its thing. You know, if I'm, if I'm trying to force something that is, that is going to like, no, I got to do this. Uh, then I think it's, it's going to chop it up. It's, it's not going to speak well, it's not going to be fluid. So um, I try to let the music, uh, you know, move in its own path, so to speak. And I know that's kind of a strange way of saying, you know, I'm, I'm basically cultivating something that maybe there was some point at the piece of music uh, where it uh, changed to something else, but I liked it. You know, I, even though I'm trying to evoke this scene, I kind of like this, you know, I really like, I, so I'm going to do it anyway, you know, I'll get back to the evoking thing, but you know, for now, I'm just going to, I'm going to do these harmonics here because I like the way it sounds an audiophile and that's just the way it is and then you just tell them it's just a new uh perspective of it right, right yeah. <laughs> yeah uh but oh yeah all the time that's definitely yeah it's it's i really like the way you explain that how you're sort of like the music ends up doing this thing and then you have to sort of allow the music to to continue in that way it's like um if if you're not a religious person and you're a composer this is almost like your higher power you know where like the music starts and you allow it okay i have to do what the music says you know because that that is actually what is um is is necessary i guess based off of everything that's happened up until this point right yeah and and because there there may be some sounds and sometimes there you know was it bob would say it's happy accidents you know there's some really cool things that happen that um that you didn't intend have happened but it's it, it kind of works itself out to showing itself and you're like okay do i ignore you or do i bring you out and do i flush it out and so yeah i never i never ignore an idea because it it could be something that's really powerful and um or you know something that certainly i could keep later on but um yeah i think you get you definitely get to a point where you have stored up so much of you have almost a card catalog of of sounds of things that you like to do stylistically that you can more so control better the older you get i found at least as a composer so you know while the, the accidents were, were probably plentiful you know my 20s or my 30s today i i have oh i know what this is going to do so I'm not going to even open up those can of worms. Like you can almost predict 
you know, 10 minutes down the road that this is going to not go where it's, so I'm not going to open up the scanner. I'm just going to close that catalog drawer. And I'm going to open up this one and that's going to take me where I want to go. So I think if I were to say the bit, one of the benefits of being an older composer, just, you know, doing a lot of works and everything uh, is that you, you have that, uh, that prediction ability. So, but yeah, always, I mean, I say, yeah, if there's something that happens, let it, let it happen. Right. Oh my God. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And sort of, uh, uh, so with the last thing you're saying, uh, in a way, like you, you've developed your tool kit in a way or your tool belt. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I almost call it like, you know, some improvisers, you know, experienced jazzers, for instance, we'll call it there. They, they almost refer to it like a card catalog of, of sounds and, and things that they do musically. And, uh, they, they pull from it and they know where it's going to go if they pull from A, you know, and they know where if B comes along, I'm going to pull that out. I know that's going to go to F at some point. Uh -huh. And so you pull out all these drawers. Um, you, number one, you have a large, you know, uh, catalog to pull from, so to speak. But they're also, um, you know, yeah, you, I think you just get better at controlling that. Um, now, the thing that is a little bit dangerous about that is if you don't, if you just stick with your uh, mode of writing, okay, you do, uh, and, and you know this, you do sort of rob yourself of the opportunity of finding new ways to express some ideas. And so I think, uh, you know, at, at some point in the process, you want to do a little experimentation. So, for example, when I write a piece of music, let's say I'm, you know, and I, I believe I experienced this with the Shenandoah piece, I'm writing this this um this section out and it's a sort of a static ethereal moment so i know what to do to make that to evoke that right i can i can do the normal eric stem thing but you know i don't want to do that all the time right i'm going to start to sound like i'm just repeating some things that i my, my old habits so what i'll do is i'll take a little time out to just really just think okay this is a blank canvas i'm going to experiment with some things and it, it's probably going to be a disaster it'll probably be a waste of one hour but i'm going to do it i'm just going to try it out and and there were a couple of cases where when i did that i was like oh this is awesome this is amazing. <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna keep this now like i had some you know strings uh, some harmonics that were where i was uh, combining that with uh, certain uh voicings in the woodwinds and you know because I'm a, I'm a color guy. I'm, I'm all about orchestration. That's where my music really kind of speaks. And um, I tried it out. I could have done something safe, but I tried this out and I kept it. And it was awesome. So it's like, yeah, wow. So yeah, take that time. I think that's, I don't know. That, that, that so uh, uh, relates to what you were saying earlier about um, taking in a lot of music studying a lot of music and then writing a lot of music right and 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 the 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 creativity in that i mean it's so challenging for us to kind of step outside of our boxes our comfort zone yeah. you yeah. know and 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 like you're challenging yourself by by going a few steps farther like well i don't know if this is gonna work <laughs> yeah yeah and i it's, think when you are under the gun if you have a lot of deadlines that you're dealing with um, certainly it makes sense that you want to do the safe thing because you don't have that much time to, to work on projects, but, uh, you know, if you do have a little bit, you know, you have the extra 30 minutes, try it out. 
and certainly in the method that we write music these days, mainly it's usually with a notation program if you're doing it sort of the traditional way, notation program like Sibelius on the computer, you know, it's not a hard thing to hit delete. You don't have to erase. Like, I mean, and I, I went through that. I remember you going through this. Have you ever written, have you, uh, did you ever spend a, many years just writing you know, by hand and so forth? Yeah, I still I write by hand. That's how I start. I always write by hand, and then and then I throw it into Sibelius once I have a good sense of, you know. Okay, I, I know yeah. a lot of composers who do that. They like the the connection, uh, or the visuals, you know, that that accompany that. And um, so I, you know, I spent many years actually up to my doctoral program. I wrote by hand. You know, I just did everything on paper. And just because I'm lazy and you know I don't feel like erasing things, sometimes I would keep things that were okay but you know i probably could have done better i would keep them just because it's just so hard to go back and but with you know technology obviously it's not a sacrifice so why not that's such a great point it it makes me think about um uh recording engineers like you know splicing literal tape you know that that's a process and like you have finite amount of tape right Whereas if you have a DAW, like Pro Tools or, or uh, FL Studios, just make another file or add another track, or, you know? Right, and, you, and if you delete it and you still, you still have a history. Right? Exactly. <laughs> I, I've done that before where I'm like, you know, writing, on, you know, writing by hand and I mess something up and I'm, I'm looking for the control C, you know, Z button and I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to erase this. <laughs> and it's so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, why not? So you should you should definitely take a little bit of time out to to go beyond what you've already done. It would, what, a, what a great way too to to kind of um, like you said how previously when you would write by hand and you'd be like ah, I don't even want to go back and have to erase that and like knowing now that you can you can just continuously like expand from within, you know, like going back to page four on a 12 page piece and then erasing and then try, you know, like, right. That's such a process. <laughs> oh yes. And that's, that's the learning of timing, you know, because so much of successful compositions, not only just what you write pitches, the sounds, the noises, what have you, but it's also the timing in which all those occur. And, you know, I find that timing is probably the, um, the one thing that you, that uh, just simply writing over and over is the only way that you're going to learn how to do it because it's a visual thing. It's, it's also, you know, when you're a younger composer, for example, or at least this is the case with me, I thought five measures was forever, you know, five measures, man, that, I mean, it took a lot to write five measures. So it must exist in a long period of time and actual time. And it doesn't. Right. So you, you think, well, if I'm going to take this idea that's five measures, um, I need to make this and expand this to 40 measures. And, to like you said, if if you've already written the five measures, you've gone on to another idea at measure six. It's hard to kind of erase in between that and put in the other, you know, thirty measures. So yeah, so yeah, that it does help with. I do this all the time. I go back and like maybe measures twenty to thirty. I want to expand the idea to to actual measure forty instead because I want it to breathe a little more. I want mm-hmm. the time, and so that's. Yeah, technology just makes it so easy to do that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh it's definitely a godsend in many ways, you know. <laughs> oh yes. For yeah. those reasons, exactly. 
Um, uh, I, I, we haven't gotten to touch upon a few things we want to talk about, but and unfortunately, I, I have to get out of here right now. Um, no but this has been such a fantastic conversation. Absolutely, yeah. I, I'm so glad you got to got to join me on here, and and I, I would love to have you back on too because I, I would love to talk about other things and the things we didn't get to talk about, and and also just the general conversation has been fantastic. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Let's do a part two at some point. We'd love to do that. Wonderful. Awesome. Um, yeah. So is there anything that you want to plug uh, before we head out or any uh, how people can find you on online and social media? Sure. Yeah. I think if you um, if you're, um, let's say, a music director, certainly www.ericstem.com. That's Eric with an H. Uh, and uh, I'm sorry, ericstem.net. ericstem.net. I did have a .com, but that uh, was removed, but ericstem.net. Um, you can see all the works that I've written as well as what I've been up to lately. AmericaBuy.com is where you can find the America Buy project and see what we're doing with the latest piece with Shenandoah. And um, if you're interested in the Atonal Ensemble, which we also mentioned and talked about, you just go on to atonalensemble.com. Uh, you'll find us there as well. And you can kind of hear what we've done in the past and there's audio files that you can download and check out if you'd like. So, yeah. Fantastic. And and with Atonal, it doesn't have the slash between it on the website, does it? It doesn't have a slash. Yeah, it's just all word. Yeah. Okay, so, got it. Atonalensemble.com. Just wanted to clarify that, making sure that, uh, you know, <laughs> it yeah, all connects. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and uh, I will gladly put all these links in the description so people can easily access it. And uh, uh yeah, but hey, Eric, thank you so much for doing this. This has been a pleasure. Well, thank you, Adam. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun.